Well, back in the 2000s, actress Rachel Dratch played a character on Saturday Night Live, a recurring character called Debbie Downer. Now, uh, some of you told me that you followed the link that I sent out in my weekly email, and you actually watched the sketch, so you have an idea of what this is. But the idea behind this, the premise, was that there would be some happy occasion, the family going to Disney World together, Thanksgiving dinner, a birthday party, and in response to everybody else's upbeat comments, Debbie Downer would always say something sad or negative. She'd always find a way to turn the conversation to something depressing. So when they're at Disney World and, you know, a cast member dressed as Pluto comes up to them to take pictures with them, uh, Debbie says to him, wow, you know, the hardest part about working at a theme park must be the constant threat of terrorist attacks. (laughs) They're at Thanksgiving dinner and when she finds out that the stuffing was cooked in the turkey, she says, well, I'm not going to have any because it just is such a great way to foster harmful bacteria. When her uncle and brother talk about going fishing, she says, yeah, doctors have told me that if I don't cut back on my consumption of fish, my mercury levels are going to reach toxic proportions. And in every conversation, Debbie Downer manages to work in the tidbit that feline AIDS is the number one killer of domestic cats. I don't even know if that's true or not, but she managed to work it into every conversation. Now, every time that she would deliver one of these bits of bad news, the camera would zoom in on her face, making an expression a lot like the one you see, and there'd be a musical wah-wah that would hit. And uh, somehow, every time they did this sketch, uh, the actors, including Rachel Dratch, would all break character and start laughing. And that's part of what made it funny. But it's also just the extreme and really creative pessimism of Debbie Downer that she could take any conversation and turn it negative. Now, have you ever known a Debbie Downer in your life? Someone with that same amazing ability to always take it to a negative place. These are the people that can find the cloud behind every silver lining. They can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. These are not people who are glass half empty. According to them, they don't even have a glass. They wish they had a glass that was half empty. Uh, these, these are the folks that are always negative. They're always in a crisis. They're always complaining. Uh, life never is working out for them. They're always willing to tell you about how hard they have it. And they are really eager to tell you how hard they have it. Debbie Downer was a funny character on a TV show. But when you meet someone like this in real life, it's not that funny. These are not fun people to be around. And I've, I've often thought it must not be very fun to be this kind of person. How miserable it must be to see all of life through this lens of negativity. Well, I couldn't help but think about Debbie Downer as I was studying the passage of scripture that we're looking at this week. Because in this passage, the Israelites do a lot of complaining and they exhibit a lot of negativity. They actually really give Debbie a run for her money. Uh, We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 16. If you have a Bible, you can turn there now. But despite all the ways that God had shown himself to his people, despite all that he had done for them and was still doing for them, despite all the ways that he had shown his power and the miracles he has done, still the people find a way to just be negative. We've seen so far as we're in this series called People of the Presence Making Our Way Through Exodus, We've seen the Lord make himself known to Moses and the Israelites, to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. 
God has made it so clear to his people that he is with them, even leading them, as we saw last week, in a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. And God has just done the most amazing miracle in not only parting the Red Sea so that his people can cross on dry ground, but then swallowing up the pursuing Egyptian army. The people celebrated this with singing and dancing, and now their journey continues. What comes next in Exodus are three stories about God's provision. In the first story, the Israelites get to a place called Mara. They get there three days after they've crossed the Red Sea. It's enough time that the supplies of water that they'd carried with them had been used up and they were thirsty. Now there was water at Mara, but it was bitter. That's actually why they called it Mara, because that means bitter in Hebrew. So this water was not potable, and so the people are upset. They complain to Moses. Moses goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, take this tree and throw it in the water, and it'll make the water sweet. And Moses does that, and so the people can drink the water. In the third story about God's provision, it also has to do with water. Uh, This time, God's led the people to camp at a place called Rephidim, and they don't have any access to water there. So the people are really upset about this. They're complaining again. They come to Moses and they actually say, why did you bring us out of Egypt into the desert so that we and our children and our livestock would all die of thirst? Moses goes to the Lord and says, "Uh, God, these people are about ready to kill me. They're about ready to stone me. You've got to do something. The Lord says, okay, go to this particular spot, take some of the leaders with you, and I'll show you where to strike the rock with your staff and water will come out. Moses does that, and there's water from the rock the people are provided for. Now, in the middle of these three stories, uh, that happens in Exodus 16. That's what we're looking at today. Uh, Would you stand with me as I read not all of this chapter, but several of the verses here so we have a sense of what's happening. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. By the way, desert of sin, that's not like sin, like wrongdoing. It just sounds like that. It's related to Sinai. They got there on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day. See, did I miss this? Nope, I'm okay. The Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? That evening quail came and covered the ground, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. An omer was about two quarts. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. 
The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and for the revelation you want to bring by your spirit through your word today. We pray, Lord, that that is indeed what would happen in these next few minutes together. We pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see you more clearly, that we'd see who we are more clearly in light of who you are. We pray that you would open our ears and our minds to hear and understand everything you want to say to us today. And I pray against anything, any distraction, confusion, anything that would get in the way of us hearing and understanding your word today. And even as you've already been moving in this place, Lord, continue to move in this time Quicken our hearts so that we'll respond to you in the ways you want us to respond today, so that we will not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the need that the people are facing in this middle story about God's provision is a need for food. This story happens one month after they had left Egypt, and this was enough time that whatever food supplies they brought with them had been used up, and so they are hungry. They complain in a very dramatic fashion to Moses and Aaron, and the Lord graciously gives them bread and meat. He provides quail for them that very night that they complain, and then the next morning and the morning after, mornings after, he provides manna for them. The Lord provides for his people. He provides for them in another way as well, not just food and water, but he provides in another way. We, we just saw that Moses instructed the people that on Friday nights, they would need to, or on Friday mornings, they would need to gather twice as much manna. And then in verses 22 through 30, it's explained why they would do that. I won't make you stand again, but just look at these verses. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, so about four quarts, And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a Sabbath rest, a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Now, that note is there because earlier... Some of the people had tried to keep some from one day to the next, and when they got up in the morning, it did stink and it did have maggots, so this is unusual that they're actually keep it overnight from Friday to Saturday. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. So the Lord here is telling the people, uh, he says in, in verse 29, that he's giving them the Sabbath. And verse 30 says they are to rest. Now, later in the Ten Commandments, which are coming up in Exodus 20, we see that honoring the Sabbath day is a command that the Lord gives to his people. But in this spot, which is the very first time the word Sabbath is used in Scripture, 
I love that God refers to it as a gift that he's giving his people. God intends to bless his people with rest. God provided rest for them just as he provided for their physical needs. And friends, God provides in these same ways for us. God provides for the basic necessities of our life. Now, in my experience, this has not happened by flakes of manna appearing outside my house in the morning, but it's happened by the Lord providing financially so that I can buy what I need. Some, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Sometimes it's happened through the generosity of others providing for me. But the Lord provides what we need, and the Lord still gives us rest. In fact, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Part of the way that God makes his faithful presence known to us is by providing for us. And that's meant to provoke a faith-filled response from us. Because God provides for us, we can and should trust him. Because God provides for us, we can trust him. Now, what does that trust look like? Well, to be honest, it looks kind of like the opposite of what the Israelites do in this passage. We're going to learn from their negative example to see two ways that we can and should show this trust in God as we know that he provides for us. And the first way we can show this trust is by requesting what we need without complaining. We can request what we need without complaining. Uh, The need that the Israelites experienced here was a real genuine need. They were not making this up. They really were thirsty. They really ran out of water. They really did run out of food. Their needs were legitimate, but it was the way that they were reacting to those needs that was inappropriate. One of the key words in these passages about provision is grumbling. That word occurs once in the first story, once in the third story, and seven times in chapter 16. The people weren't just saying we need this. They went straight to complaining that they didn't have it. Now, complaining is a pretty natural thing for us to fall into when we don't have what we need. It's a temptation that's really, really easy for us to give into. But if we give in to complaining and grumbling, it actually is pretty dangerous for us, just as it was dangerous for the Israelites. One of the problems with complaining is that it puts our focus in the wrong place. You remember we saw last week how important it is where we look, what we focus on, what we see. And complaining got the Israelites looking in the wrong place. Their complaints, their grumbling, was accompanied by this longing look back at Egypt. They were looking back at their time in Egypt through very rose-colored glasses, we have to say. I mean, this we sat around pots of meat, and we had all the food we wanted. Literally all the bread we wanted. It was like, you know, unlimited breadsticks. It was Olive Garden. was their experience of Egypt. And you just go, really, guys, that's how you're remembering Egypt. You don't, you're not going to talk about the attempted genocide, the slavery, the oppression. It was all just pots of meat and unlimited bread. And this is, they're, they're looking back, and they have the, they're not remembering accurately what they were coming out of. Then often when we're complaining about whatever's in our present, that's accompanied by or even fueled by an inaccurate memory of how things used to be. We complain saying, oh, I wish things were how they used to be when we're not even remembering correctly how things used to be. It's a natural human tendency to, uh, to not remember the hard things as bad as they really were, to kind of gloss over them. And so we have this rosy glow of nostalgia as we look back sometimes. 
but we really need to discipline ourselves to think, was that past season really as great as I'm making it out to be in my mind? Was that past relationship really without its conflicts? Was that past job really without its problems? Was that past church or pastor really without any weaknesses? Because when we're complaining about what's going on in the present, it can very easily cause us to have this distorted view of what has happened in our past, or we can have a distorted view when we look at what other people are experiencing. We get our eyes off, we're looking at them kind of through the lens of our problem, we just see that their life is going so well. Again, we've got to ask, is their life really going that well, or did they just learn how to use the filters on Instagram to make it look like it's going well? Are you really seeing how their life is, or are you just seeing a curated version of their life? See, when, we're, when we get into this mode of grumbling and complaining, it distorts our view of what pe- of, you know, as we compare to people around us and as we look to our past. And, and this is a problem. This is a problem. Part of the problem with complaining is that it also gets our focus onto our problems rather than onto God's provision and his solution for us. You know, we really need to be aware when we catch ourselves going, oh, I'm I longing for the meat pots of Egypt, or whatever our version of that is. That's a sign, okay, I'm complaining and this is unhealthy. It's also a sign if we recognize that we're so focused on our own problems that we can't see the ways that God is present and working among us. And this happened for the Israelites. It, you know, seven times in chapter 16, it says that they were grumbling. This is where their focus was. It was on what they didn't have and how upset they were about it. And they were catastrophizing. We're probably going to die here. And they kept rehearsing that truth over and over again. It wasn't a truth. It felt to them like it was true. That's what they were meditating on. How much better would it have been for them to meditate on the Lord's provision, to rehearse the stories of how he had provided for them? This would have been a great time for them to break into a few more choruses of the horse and rider had been thrown into the sea. It's like, Miriam, come on out with the timbrels and lead us again. Like, we got to remember what the Lord has done. So we're focusing on him, not just our problems. The people were grumbling and complaining. They were focused on their problems so much, they didn't see the Lord who was literally right in front of them. In chapter 16, verse 10, Uh, It says that the Lord had all the people gather together and he showed his glory in the pillar of cloud. The Lord saying to them, hey guys, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm able, but they were missing that. In chapter 17, verse 7, at the very end of that story about God providing water for the rock, it quotes a question the Israelites were asking. They were asking, is the Lord even among us? And if that question strikes us as absurd, I think that's kind of the point. We're meant to wonder, how on earth could they be asking this question after the plagues and after the parting of the Red Sea and after all the miracles that God had done, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire? How can they ask this question, is the Lord even among us? I think a big factor that got them to that point was their grumbling and complaining. They were focused so much on the problems, they missed the Lord, and that led them to doubt his presence with them. Folks, we can be in danger of the same thing. If we focus so much on the problem, we just grumble and complain about it, we're going to miss what God's doing. So one of the dangers of complaining is that it puts our focus in the wrong place. Another problem with, with grumbling and complaining is that it can distort our understanding of our relationship with God. 
the, God provided for the Israelites despite their grumbling. I wonder if they thought that God was providing for them because of their grumbling. Because there is a pattern here. They grumble, the Lord provides. They grumble, the Lord provides. They grumble, the Lord provides. Maybe they thought, oh, this is what it takes to get the Lord to provide for us. We've got to grumble and complain, get his attention, flag him down, and then he'll actually respond. There was a pattern there, but as anyone who studied statistics will tell you, correlation does not equal causation. There's something else going on here. I think what's going on is that the Israelites were still stuck in a slave mentality. See, when they were slaves, no one was going to just give them anything. They had to strive and contend for everything they needed. The people who were over them in authority, their slave masters, did not care much about them aside from what they could do for them. Their slave masters probably didn't even care whether they lived or died as long as there was enough manpower to go around to do the work that they needed them to do. So the Israelites were used to having to fight for what they needed, to manipulate, to complain, to do whatever they had to do to have their needs met. And I think they were carrying that same mentality over, probably without even realizing it, into their relationship with God and the person that God had put in leadership over them in Moses. That they, they, were, they were still thinking, we've got to create a stink if we're going to get them to pay attention to us and give us what we need. But here's the problem. They weren't slaves anymore. God had called Israel his firstborn. So they were no longer appealing to slave masters for their provision. They were appealing to a loving father. And that should have made a huge difference for them. And friends, this should make a huge difference for us as well. We do not have to try to manipulate God into providing for us by complaining to him. You don't have to moan loud enough and long enough before God will provide for you. It's good for some of us to hear that God is not like some of the other authority figures you've had in your life. God is not like some of the people you've had to rely on to provide for you. God is good and he is loving and out of his love and goodness, out of his character, he provides for us. God's provision for us does not depend on our behavior, but on his character. In verse 4, the Lord says that he is going to test the Israelites in how he provides for them to see if they can follow his instructions. Notice, by the way, that the test is not whether he's going to provide, but how he provides. He's wanting to see if they can follow instructions. And then down towards the end of the chapter, the Lord says that the people have not followed his commandments or his instructions. They failed the test. Now, what did the Lord do after he acknowledges that the people failed the test? Does he say, that's it. No more manna for you. You're cut off. You're, you've got to fend for yourselves. No, actually what comes, comes next is God reminds them of the purpose of the Sabbath, that it's for their benefit to rest. And then the Lord commands that a jar of manna be preserved as a tangible reminder for future generations of how the Lord provided for his people. Uh, the, the Lord's response to their poor behavior was not to withhold provision, but to remind them of his provision. He commanded that that jar of manna be preserved, and eventually it saved with the tablets of the covenant law that Moses will receive from the Lord on Mount Sinai. They're kept together in the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place as a reminder. But I love that the reminder of the provision came before even the law was given. God is providing grace before he provides 
those requirements in the covenant law. That's God's response to the people's poor behavior was to remind them of his provision. all, All this reminds us that God's provision is not dependent on our behavior. You do not have to manipulate God into providing for you by complaining. This means that we can trust God by requesting what we need without complaining. We just ask him for what we need. Uh, This is appropriate for us to do. Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, when he's teaching his disciples to pray, he said, pray, give us today our daily bread. Jesus reminded his disciples that your Father in heaven loves to give good gifts to those who ask him. In Philippians 4, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. We can and should come with our needs to the Lord and ask him to provide. It would have been appropriate for the Israelites to come to the Lord and say, we're at this place, we're out of water, the only water we see is bitter, would you please provide? It would have been appropriate for them to say, God, our food supplies have run out, and we don't know how we're going to feed our families, would you please provide for us? It would have been appropriate for them to say, you led us to this place to camp, but there's no access to water here, would you provide for us? That would have been appropriate, and it is appropriate for us to come to the Lord and name our need before him and say, would you please provide? Now, you might say, that's great, Tim, but what if you do that and he's still not providing? Well, then you can borrow a prayer that I have prayed a bunch of times myself. I have often prayed, Lord, it really looks to me like I need this, and I don't have it. But I know you're faithful and good, so please either change my perception of what I need or provide this for me. And if you're testing me and wanting me to learn something, please help me to learn it quickly. Make it clear. I don't want to miss it, but Lord, please provide. God honors those kinds of prayers. And so one of the ways that we show our trust in God as we know that he's our provider is that we can request what we need without complaining. Complaints will distract us from where we need to look. They'll get our attention onto our, you know, some inaccurate memory of the past and some distorted version of what someone else has. It'll put our eyes on our problem rather than the Lord's solution. So by resisting complaining, we actually build faith and trust so that we can just ask God for what we need without feeling like we need to try to manipulate him or complain or cause a stink. We request without complaining. A second way that we can exhibit this trust in God as he provides for us is to rest without worrying. To rest without worrying. You know, even after Moses has explained to the people, here's why you gather twice as much on Friday, it's because there's not going to be any manna on Saturday. Even after that, some of the people still go out to try to gather manna on Saturday morning. Even though they had enough, Even though they had an instruction not to go out, they went out anyway. Why did they do that? Well, we might think maybe they were just really hungry and they just really needed more manna. I don't think it was that. You know, two quarts per person, that's a a lot of bread to eat in a day. I don't think the issue was that they were hungry. I think the issue was that they wanted to have a reserve. I think this is why some people had tried to save some from one night to the next morning. I think this is why people went out on Saturday, even though they had enough for that day, they thought, what if it doesn't come? What if there's no manna the next day? What if there's no manna on Sunday? I've got to save some up. They were acting in response to what if. What if there's not enough? What if it doesn't come? 
you know, this, this, this miracle of there's bread every day from heaven, that's a great miracle to witness and to be a part of. But that daily dependence part, that takes some faith. I think these people were having a hard time trusting that it was really going to be there. And so they went out to try to find it. They, they tried, were trying to build up a little reserve and a little safety net for themselves. Now, what they were trying to do didn't work because there wasn't any manna for them to gather. And not only did it not work, but they actually missed out on some of the rest that God intended for them to have. As slaves in Egypt, they probably did not get too many days off. So this is an incredible blessing that God is giving to them by telling them, look, one day a week, you're not going to work, you're going to rest. But because of fear, some of them were in danger of missing out on that. Now, since God does not rain down literal bread from heaven for us, we're going to have to apply this a little differently than they did. But I do think that there is something for us to learn here about resting. The idea of Sabbath, even that word means to cease. It means to stop work once a week so we can rest and have a day of rest. And I, I don't think that we have to observe Sabbath from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday like the Israelites did. But I do think that we are meant to have a day a week where we pause our regular rhythms and routines and we rest. Now, taking a Sabbath day is something that if you're not used to doing it may feel unnatural at first and maybe even countercultural. Because for as much as our culture values pleasure and even values leisure, we're not really good at resting. People tend to just go nonstop and always have something else to do that's keeping them busy. And, and you know, a good, a good uh, uh, test of this is just to notice what kind of thoughts cross our mind when we think about not working one day a week, taking a day of rest. Some of the thoughts that might come is, well, okay, but if I do that, then how is the laundry going to get done? When is the lawn going to get mowed? How are the leaves going to get raked? If you you know, are self-employed, you might think, how's work going to get done if I take an entire day and don't work? How's it all going to get done? How are all these responsibilities going to be taken care of? Yeah, it, this is something that may not feel natural, but if we don't take a Sabbath, we're missing out on the gift of rest that God intends for us to have. God intends that our lives would have this weird rhythm of work and rest. Now, some of us may at times need to be reminded that hard work does honor God and we need to be diligent and perseverant. But others of us need to be reminded from time to time that God intends for us to take a Sabbath. There's to be a rhythm in our life of work and rest. Taking this day of rest, having a Sabbath, is probably going to take some preparation and intentionality on our part. It's not something that will happen automatically. We, we see that even the Israelites had to prepare for the Sabbath. They gathered twice as much on Friday so that they would have enough for Saturday and they would bake it, boil it, whatever, so they'd be ready for the next day. And it will take some planning and preparation for us to be able to take a day of rest because there are things that have to get done. The laundry does have to get done. The leaves do have to get raked. We do have responsibilities that we have to attend to. <clears throat> so how can we structure our lives in such a way that we get that work done in six days and we can take a day to rest? It may sound counterintuitive to say that we have to give some effort so that we can rest, 
but giving that, that purpose, being purposeful about structuring our lives so we can take a day of rest is, is really worth it. It's something that's important for us to do, not just because it follows God's instructions, not just because it honors the gift that he's giving us, but because it makes life more sustainable in the long haul for us. I'll tell you, if you want to burn out, don't take a Sabbath. If you want to be unavailable to the important people in your life, work nonstop and never take a break. But if you want to make it over the long haul with healthy relationships, if you want to be healthy physically, emotionally, spiritually, then find a way, do what you have to do to take a Sabbath rest. Now, some people, when they talk about Sabbath, they will present lots of rules about what you should or shouldn't do on this day of rest. What I would say is just do what's going to leave you feeling rested and refreshed. And that might be different for different people. For me, Sabbath means taking a nap. And it means going for a walk. In this season, it's going to mean watching some football. It means spending time with my wife. Those are things that are restful and refreshing to me. What Sabbath looks like for you might be different. For some of you, it might mean gardening. It might mean working in your shop. It might mean baking. It might mean hanging out with friends. But whatever it is, it's going to leave you refreshed. Prioritize doing that. Find a way to take a Sabbath. Can you rest? Can you cease from labor and effort? Do you have this built into the rhythm of your life, the weekly rhythm of your life, that there's a day of rest. When we do this, when we rest without worrying, without fear, uh, this shows that we're trusting God. Taking this Sabbath is important, yet people don't do it. Why is that? Well, one reason is, I think, rooted in fear. It's rooted in this fear that we're not going to have enough. What if I do this and I don't have enough time to get everything done? What if I don't have enough money because I'm not taking advantage of every opportunity to work? What, what if? That's a response, though, that's, that's based in fear, not in faith. That's a response that is based in worry, not in trust of the Lord. You know, hard work does honor God, but we need to remember that, again, God's provision doesn't depend on our behavior. Your, your busyness does not impress God. He's not any more likely to provide for you when you're busy than when you're not, because his provision is based out of his character. So, you can let go of the busyness. You know, often when, we, when we're staying busy, it's, uh, it, we like it because it helps us feel like we're in control because we're doing something. But a desire to control is always rooted in fear. So if you're having a hard time resting, a good question to ask yourself is, what am I afraid of? What am I trying to control? What am I afraid is going to happen if I stop work? So we need to do some digging to see if we're having a hard time resting, is fear at the root of that? Something else that makes it hard to rest is if we have an inaccurate understanding of who God is and his character. Listen, friends, God is faithful. He provided for you yesterday. He's going to provide for you tomorrow. He is faithful, and we can trust in his faithfulness that he will provide for us. Can you rest? Can, will you build in this time if you don't already have it? When we rest without worrying, it shows that we're trusting God, that we know that he's faithful. We, we understand that, um, that our busyness does not impress him. We've given up the, the uh, fantasy of control. 
We're not afraid of not having enough because we know who he is and we know that he's faithful. One of the ways that God shows his faithfulness to us, one of the ways he makes us aware of his faithful presence with us is to provide what we need. And our response to that provision is to trust him. We trust him as we request what we need without complaining, knowing knowing that complaining is going to distract us. It's going to put our focus in places that it shouldn't be. And so instead of complaining, we just request what we need, showing that we're trusting the Lord to provide. We're making our needs known, but we're not complaining or grumbling. And yes, we rest without worrying, trusting in the Lord's faithfulness to provide for us. As we think about applying this word to our lives, I think it's good to take a little bit of an inventory and just look within and say, okay, is there complaining in my life? And even if the words don't actually make it out of complaint, you know the tapes that play in your head. (laughs) Is there grumbling and complaining in your head and your heart? Is there worry in you? You know, we think about resting in terms of the Sabbath, but it's also a good kind of litmus test to think of when you lay down at night and close your eyes to sleep, are there worried thoughts that are going through your head? Are you really able to rest without worry? If we see that complaining or worry is there, it's good to do some digging with the Lord, to go a little deeper to say, God, what's the root of that? Is there fear in my life? Am Am I not remembering who you are correctly? Would you remind me of who you are? to get to the root of that so that we can, we can trust the Lord as he provides for us. I want to give you a moment to do a little bit of that work with the Lord right now. If you just want to bow your heads to create a private moment between you and the Lord and, and worship team, would you come and be ready to lead us again? But just in this moment, ask the Lord to help you as you examine your heart. Is there complaining? Is there worry there? If there is, start that work with the Lord right now. Dig in a little deeper to see what, what may need to be dealt with. Just take a minute for that conversation with the Lord now. Lord, I'm praying that your grace would be really tangibly present in this moment in each of our hearts and minds as we contemplate where we're at with these issues of complaining, worrying, and trusting you. And just even asking the question, what am I afraid of? That can be a hard question to honestly ask. And some of us might not want to ask that genuinely because we kind of don't want to know what the answer is because it would mean digging into some uncomfortable areas but I thank you Lord that exposure is a gift because it leads to healing and resolution and so Lord especially for those that that are a little scared to ask even what's the root what what are they afraid of Lord I pray for your grace to walk them into that process of of discovery in that deeper place even if it's in dark corners of their soul that you would go there holding their hand, shining the light of your truth, but also the light of your love into those dark corners so they can see, so that they can give that to you, so that they can no longer be afraid. Lord, for any who uh, still have a slave mentality crop up from time to time, slave to sin, slave to fear mentality, Lord, I pray for freedom from that in your name. We sing the song, we're no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. That's true. Lord, would you help that to be experientially true in us, that we would feel the truth of that in our lives, even as we confess that truth. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live as those who are fully and deeply loved by you, as your beloved children who are pleasing to you through Jesus. May that be, 
what governs us. And Lord, as we're confident of your love for us and your presence with us, as we see your provision for us, may our response be faith in you and trust in you. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Chapel family, I bless you with eyes to see what God is doing in your life and ears to hear his voice as he speaks to you. I bless you that you would not miss his presence in your life, that you would not miss whatever the pillar of cloud is for you, the way God is revealing himself in your life in this season. I bless you with eyes to see. I bless you with focus that would be on him and his provision rather than on even the real problems and needs that you do face. I bless you with that clarity and I bless you with sharpened spiritual hearing that the voice of God would not be mysterious or distant to you in this season, but that you would hear the Lord speaking, hear his heart for you, hear his direction and guidance for you. I bless you in the name of Jesus, Chapel family. As we go from this place, we are blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you.